My name is James Cook. I have not seen my children since they were taken seven years ago this month, which is July. And they were taken in July 2014 from Minnesota, United States, and they were taken to Japan. I've been through the Hague return order process twice, and I've been awarded returns twice. I've also been through local courts. I have sole custody of my children, multiple return orders, and all of that. And I still have not seen my children. I'm still trying to get a hold of them and get them returned through all legal means. And this is my story. In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to James Cook, whose children have been abducted to Japan back in 2014. If you just Google Japan child abduction, you will see his name appear in the Google results because he has gotten two written orders from Japanese Hay Courts and five written orders from the US Courts, yet he failed to reunite with them. We will get deeper into what exactly happened and why Japan is the black hole of abduction in this episode. Now, before we get to the episode, I would like to inform all our listeners that Glenwood, someone we have had in this podcast before, is retrying his paternity harassment or Patahara case in the Tokyo High Court this September. Recently, I had another chance to talk to him about the harassment that he had gone through while he was at uh, Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. And here's a quick soundbite from that particular conversation. Well, as I mentioned, I've been in Japan for a long time and I, I love Japan. And I was a manager in the company at Mitsubishi UFJ Morgan Stanley Securities. And I took my management responsibilities very seriously. And I still take them very seriously. And when I, when I looked back and I, I saw instances of, of um, women being harassed, for example, whether it was sexual harassment or, or whether it was maternity-related harassment, there was, a, there was a pattern of women disappearing after they got pregnant. and. Um, you know, firing pregnant women is, is, is an old trick that I think we, we've seen in many of our, our countries. I remember many years ago, my mom actually talking about it um, when I was a kid and, and in Canada. And, you know, from a management perspective, if they can fire pregnant women, then for a short period of time, you know, they might have, uh, in their opinion, a stronger workforce because uh, they don't have the liabilities of having a woman take time off from maternity leave and, and then have, have, have the children getting sick and, and the worker having to take time off to take care of the children. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's the responsibility of, of society. And if we can't have children, if parents, if parents can't have children, then we won't have a next generation of workers. We won't have a next generation of, of, of a country. And indeed, I think we see the glimpses of that perhaps in Japan, where the birth rate has been so low for so long, that we don't allow workers to have children. And we don't allow families to be families and to take, take time, whether it's women or men, to spend time with families and to have children. And so 
in my situation, when, when I was fired uh, for taking a short period of time off, when I had a family emergency, um, I, it, it really hit home to me. And maybe, maybe I should have been, uh, maybe I should have been a, a parental rights spokesman before that happened to me. But certainly after I experienced it directly, um, it, it, it really um, has impacted me. And I, I feel that for Japan's sake, uh, for sustainability's sake, for the fact that, you know, we're talking globally now about United Nations sustainability development goals. We're talking about um, environmental, social, and corporate governance, investing, investors. These are the types of things that capital is looking for, companies that are operating under sustainable management practices. And this type of behavior, I believe, is non-sustainable. It's fine, perhaps you want to protect the environment, but don't you think you should protect your employees first? And so from my perspective as a manager, I feel, I, f- I felt and I still feel that I really need to stand up for this issue. And that I believe that, that parents have a right to have children, that young people, Japanese young people, any young people in the world have a right to have a career and a family. And, and, and that you don't have to choose one or the other. And if you force somebody to choose one or the other, at the end of the day, you're going to damage society. You're going to damage your country. You're going to damage your people. And that's non-sustainable behavior. And so I feel very strongly that children have a right, an, inalien- an inalienable right to spend time with their parents. And young people have a right to have children and continue their career. Not just men, not just women, not just LBGTQ, everybody, everybody has a right to have children and continue their career. That's why I'm standing up. So that was Glenn Wood explaining the kind harassment that he went through at Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. If you would like to support him, you can go to findmyparent.org slash Glenwood for more details on his case. It will be awesome if you're in Japan and you can attend his court case. It is happening on the September 10th from 2 p.m. at courtroom number 822, Tokyo High Court. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode with James Cook. Well, I'm James Cook, and I live in the Twin Cities area of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I have um, four children, two sets of twins, that were abducted to the, from the United States to Japan in July of 2014. In fact, this month celebrates, or if you want to use that word, the seven-year anniversary of the last time that I had my children with me. Uh, My wife, now ex-wife, is from Japan, and she took our four children on a vacation, and I'm using air quotes so you can't see it, on a vacation with my permission, and um, she never brought them back. So that's what started it our relationship had started to break down uh, prior to that. So I have been through a lot and I've seen a lot of people and told my stories, a lot of different venues before the United States Congress three times, multiple newspapers around the world. I've been to Japan, been a lot of places and told my story. And one and some of the things that I get back from people and if you're in the, if you're someone listening to this podcast or interested in this topic, and you find yourself in this unfortunate situation, I will tell you some of some of the truly vile and awful things people say. 
and think. And that is, well, you should have known better. You shouldn't have let your kids go. It's your fault. What did you do? All of these things come at you when you are a parent in this situation. I don't like to use the word victim. I like to use the word targeted because as you will discover, or if you're someone interested in the topic, you will come to learn that many of these abductions are premeditated and they're not spontaneous. There's a great deal of planning that goes into into them, and there are a great deal of outside parties that assist in these abductions to have them happen and then to perpetuate them. You know, I will um, cover those and name names as we go on. That's the background. Thank you for the quick summary of what happened with you and your kids. James, now let's unpack it a bit. You mentioned that these abductions are premeditated and planned with the help of many individuals involved in it. Can you explain what you meant by that, especially when it comes to the abduction of your kids? Well, it, it, and, I, and what I say, uh, part of my comments are in a larger general sense of folks that find themselves in this situation, parents left behind, LBPs, left behind parents was the acronym. Um, and some are specific to my case. Uh, my, in my specific case, I believe that my wife was afraid we were going to get divorced and she did not want to be a divorced mother. And she even said that to that effect. Um, and I believe she fled with the children because she didn't want to be a divorced mother living in the United States. Um, all by herself and abandoned, which I would never do to her. And that was not anything, you know, that wasn't anything in the cards or plans or anything like that. It was, you know, that was, I'm not that kind of guy, as she said, there are different ways over the years. But nonetheless, she took off. Um, in this larger, pulling out a little bit further from it, in her group of friends in the Twins, this section of the Twin Cities, not all of the Twin Cities, but just this section, small area of clustered of suburbs. There probably were any point in time, six to eight um, mothers, Japanese mothers who were married to Western guys or other foreigners that lived in this area. We have a lot of uh, good industry here, medical device, um, technology. And so they, that brought together a, a diverse community of, of married couples and families. of about eight of the Japanese moms, call them that, Japanese moms in this group that she sometimes hung out with, four of them were involved in some kind of abduction with their children over a very short period of time. One of which was a, was a person who very rarely frequented the group who, who I had heard, like almost as it was going on real time, how his wife, now ex-wife, was actually planning how to marginalize him and his family from his family and then just take off with the children. And I didn't know who this guy was. I do now, I do now know after everything happened, he and I happened to connect and I went, Oh my God, you're this guy. I didn't even know it. I'm so sorry. He goes, well, you know, we never know. So that, that's a bit of background in that area. But um, in the case of Japan, going back even further, there are actually seminars that have been put on, been caught on videotape um, and audio, seminars from Japanese officials, government officials, 
that that explain to Japanese women, ostensibly Japanese women, because they're 90 plus percent of the ones that take the children, um, but we'll just say Japanese nationals, how to abduct children and get around the quote unquote rules of the Hague and those sorts of things and how to keep them once you've abducted them into Japan, how to keep them there and what the government will do to make sure you don't ever have to return them. And then there are actually websites, blogs, things like that, that have dedicated purposes for abducting children from foreign countries back into Japan and what protections you have and things like that. So these, and so that is, that's, uh, you know, another level pulling out even further of how uh, there's support and all of that. Um, and then even, even a larger sense, well, I can't get much larger, I guess, than Japan, but Japan is a country. And I'll speak specifically to that because that's one I know the, the best. Um, is a black hole of child abduction. They are abhorrent in how they um, do or how they uh, protect Japanese nationals above all else, no matter what the crime, no matter what they've done. If there is a foreigner involved, the J- Japanese person is a, is absolved ultimately of any responsibility or consequences. The government of Japan refuses to abide by treaties they signed, which state comity, which means an agreement. Uh, uh, if if you have a legal, if we have a legal order in the United States that should be enforced by recognized and enforced by Japanese courts, there are treaties to this effect that are longstanding. Japan routinely ignores those and create and, and must on their own create whole trials out of the air. Is you know they won't trust the legal process in the United States, even though they've signed a treaty to the effect, and we're supposed to be diplomatic friends. They will attempt to to litigate things anew, and that is further, further, and further delays. And so it's the and the Japanese legal system is is systematic or it's systemically set up to deny justice to anyone that's not a Japanese national. It's just set up that way. You mentioned that a lot of Japanese women opt to abduct their kids instead of having a joint custody arrangement with their ex-husbands. I feel like that is a self-defeating behavior as they choose to stay in this complicated arrangement compared to sharing the responsibility with the ex-boss, although the marriage is over. I think that is just creating a messed up situation for them and their kids. What do you think about it? I don't know that necessarily that they try to avoid divorce, although there's a great deal of shame in that, like there's something wrong and they hide that. I mean, they're, I, I, I started my relationship with the country of Japan when I, when I first went to work there in 1987. And so I've had an ongoing relationship. I've lived there. I've lived there and worked there twice. I was married to someone from Japan. We used to go and visit for, you know, weeks or a month at a time. Uh, and so there's, I've been in uh, Japan a lot. I had a business relationship with them throughout most all of this time also, uh, as importing uh, product line that was made, was made over there. And so I have this relationship with Japan. So, and I don't, I don't hold myself out to be an, ex- <clears throat> excuse me, an expert on the country. However, I will hold myself out as being far more experienced and seasoned than these Japanophile, sycophantic, anime-worshipping, isn't-it-a-beautiful-country type of people. And I'll be very blunt, those people make me sick um, because they're, uh, they bought in hook, line, and sinker to this PR campaign of how wonderful Japan is. 
And when you when you understand the Japanese culture and how Japanese people conduct themselves, they are not like us. When I say us, I mean like the big U.S. and generally Western society. They operate by different rules. They are their rules. They are they are they by their rights and by their uh, growing up and all of that. They are they are what they are, and they can be fine. But they are not how we. They do not do business. They do not, they're not human. They don't look at humanity or human rights the way we do. They don't do a lot of things like we do. Um, and they negotiate, if you want to even call that term, differently than us. Um, as a case in point, uh, a couple of points I like to put out there that if some people understand these concepts, it will, it will clarify it quickly. It's a zero-sum society, zero-sum being. That in all negotiations and all situations, there has to be one clear winner and one clear loser. Um, which, you know, so in that case, then that follows on in their, in their family law as there's only sole custody in Japan. There's no such thing as shared custody that's protected or even recognized under the law. So you have one winner and one loser. Um, also in business, they do not collaborate. They are, um, like for instance, if we, we, we give concessions, like to, we give a little, we give something to get something. And that's how we're taught how to communicate and collaborate as human beings and get along in our society. Over there, if when we do negotiations from the West, say, you know, you know, we're, we want to cooperate. So this is what we're going to offer up to you to start out. They say, thank you. And it's from that point, they take that from you. And it's from that point, they start the negotiations anew as though nothing has happened up to this point. And so that's where we lose as a country diplomatically. That's where we lose as people here in many ways because we're all, we all understand or how we've learned to trade and build relationships is on I give something, you give something. I hate to use the word compromise, but it's a collaboration, you know, because in, in compromise, both people kind of end up unhappy. That's not ultimately where we want to go. We want to be collaborators. So we're building something better that neither one of us could envision, but we're doing it together. That's not how Japanese operate. It's one way or the other. There's very little collaboration, particularly in the resolution of disputes like divorce. And so, um, and I'm going to digress a little bit, but another case in point is overwhelmingly, and to be very conservative, I'll say 90%, it's actually closer to 95% of the parents or parent in Japan that will whoever takes the child first gets to keep them, and so the the in that again is that zero sum game, uh, and so whoever take abducts the child first, even domestically, not just talking internationally, just domestically gets to keep the child, and they call it the continuity principle, which is a nice euphemism that the for a very lazy judiciary uh, over there, but they uh, if a child is taken. Uh, the the courts or the the mindset and the legal system is well the child's been through enough already they've already been abducted once you know if we were to relocate them back with the parent they were stolen from that would be way too disruptive for them so it's better off for the child just to stay with the person who took them first which anybody that's educated enlightened has any concept of human psychology or human development knows how fucked up that is just absolutely fucked up that is. Um, but it's the late, it's the lazy, it's lazy judiciary. And I'll be very vulgar here. They're very chicken shit people. 
because they hate confrontation and they'll give up quickly on a lot of things. And so they do a lot of things to avoid confrontation. And the folks in Japan, Japanese people that understand this, um, have like particularly, I'm going to keep kind of digressing here off on tangents, but um, the legal system is run uh, in terms of lawyers by attorneys that are hysterical, screaming maniacs or angry shouters. Um, and and apparently the the crazier and the more, you know, he's a really bad word here, that shit crazy you, you are for your client, um, apparently the more valid your client's position is. And that's just no way to run the railroad. It's no way to have a legal system because we're and, and and undermining all of this also is if you look at Japanese law, children in the law are are written about in the law in the same way as a pet or a plant or a painting. It's a piece of property to award. This is not a sentient. This is not a human being. This is not any anyone we, who's who actually has their own sort of autonomous or sovereign rights. This is just something that we award to one person or the other, right? And so it's archaic. It's barbaric how they do it. And um, so, I mean, I guess that's a fairly damning criticism, but that, that's, like, I guess I'm gone too far from your original question. Sorry. Nobody's on that, mate. You mentioned that Japan is a country that only believes in zero-sum games. Or in other words, they don't believe in the concept of give and take or how people normally say, it. you know, you win some and lose some. Japan is one of the biggest economies in the world. We also know that they have the best tech and best businesses when it comes to uh, how they are doing compared to every other country in the world. But what is causing them to behave this way still, especially when it comes to parental rights, children's rights and so on? Well, I, I have a minor in Japanese which required in from university and which required me to learn a fair amount of East Asian studies, right? And so I don't purport to be an expert on this. And I actually have long forgotten a lot of the really critical things I learned those many years ago. But I will give you uh, my thoughts that are uh, influenced by what I've learned and what I've experienced. And I also will qualify this again by saying I'm not a scholar. And so what I hold out, I can't claim as actual facts, quote unquote facts for people, because really what are facts in today's world? We seem to have completely screwed that concept over anyways. Um, so anyhow, what it appears to be is it's a, it's a collectivist system in Japan. You know, it's all for one. It's not any, you know, the individual doesn't matter. It's the collective. And from that has flown, flowed. Uh, a lot of behaviors and societal mores that we in the West, and I'll say the United States, the West, do not uh, follow. And so they champion um, social calm or, collect or group calm over individual. And so they sacrifice the individual for the benefit of the group. And that's inculcated in everyone as they're growing up. Um, so that there's that collectivist sort of stuff. They are, uh, like I said, they're all they're, They look out. They look out for their group before they ever look out for any individual rights. So it's a group rights versus individual rights. So it's different than what we have here. Uh, another thing is that zero sum game goes back to 
you would like to think, or it's common to think, goes back to the feudal, you know, shogun. You know, think of those images of, you know, there's only one winner out of a sword fight, sword fight typically. And, um, there's, you know, two, you know, so that, that's, that is a real classic reason or explanation for the zero sum game. Uh, another, what they have, they were, uh, very proud country. And we go back to, uh, World War II, which is the most, is basically how the, how the West and the United States really got introduced to them, uh, because we had one, we, we had a war with them and or they had a war with us. And then we did that terrible act that um, Japan has been uh, famous for ever since, in many senses of the word. Uh, what has come out of that society and, and since World War II, so 70, some, about 70 years, is they, we bombed them and then we built them up. And then we used them as a basis and we used their industry. We funded their industry to build up our next war effort in Korea. So a lot of their industries got brought back to the back healthy again at a more rapid, less organic rate, artificial rate, because we paid for it. So we could fund the Korean intervention and the Korean war or whatever act we want to call that. And so we use the Japanese industry as a, as a uh, remote factory and, and manufacturing site for much of our war effort in that part of the world. And they always have been since then. They've always been a basis for our strategic interests. And we, so we have that um, kind of mutually assured cooperation, if you will, and, and it, that figures into a lot of what's going on. Um, so being a collectivist society and not being that way, not set up typically for being successful, um, they've lagged behind far more independent. It's just in a, in a look at society um, when there's freedom and freedom and innovation and autonomy, like we have here in the United States, you get a lot more, you get freedom. I mean, you get a lot more innovation, you get a lot more, more rapid advancement and people as we, in microcosm of like IT and how that's so wild in IT that people are leapfrogging each other constantly. Sometimes it's in the same room, you know, back to back in chairs. Right. Um, so we have that kind of freedom and innovation. We do it for reasons, individual pursuits rather than the collective pursuit. But the collectivists eventually can, can grow and follow on. Well, Japan has been building. We funded it back to the Korean times. And then they've always been our friend ever since. Japan has benefited uh, mightily from that association. So they haven't had to say change much or adapt much. They've just been receiving. Um, money just to be our friend and we've used that they've used that to build up their factories and their power in the world um it is japan is uh quite adept at uh surviving and that's what they've done since world war ii they survived and any really any sort of relationships negotiations they have with people it's just how do we get how do we get the best of this how do we you know make it through and it's not and i say that of course everyone's the best i don't see that say that meaning that they're malicious uh but it's they're just looking to survive and to keep going and going and going and going for the in many ways many ways it's noble for the benefit of their society and they're good um but some of their means to their ends are pretty awful i get what you mean man uh but let's talk about this from a human perspective uh let me explain what i mean by that I believe that every human have the capacity to be a good person. So if we take that approach, it's obvious that Japanese people 
are humans too and they do want to do all the right things that we are speaking about such as uh, giving the rights to children joint custody so on and so forth what is stopping them from doing it what is stopping them from making the transition that many countries have already made ages got ago got it i know exactly i i got the answer uh two different two different layers on that question for you first of all the, hum- the human aspect of what prevents it and their society the global uh, or the larger issue at play is that zero sum society it's the un um yeah it's it's the zero sum society it's the inability to have or an understanding or appreciation that we cooperate we we actually we collaborate and cooperate to get a, get to a better solution than either one we came either one of the ones we came to the table with if it if it were be if it were to become okay in Japan to lose or if it were and lose being a give a concession anytime you give a concession you've lost in their eyes you're not you're not cooperating you're losing um to get over that that is what keeps them from so much potential growth as a society and and oh more a more opportunity for their citizens is to get over that zero sum thinking have a collaborative say it's okay for two people to cooperate to come to a better solution specifically in the case of family law what um and in my and I, I'm going to digress a little bit here to give more background for the listeners and all of that and maybe if you aren't aware i my case is probably the most famous and I don't say that out of ego I say that factually the most famous case in the history of the Hague between the United States and Japan it's I don't, don't believe there's a case that's been written about more uh, my story has been tr- covered and reprinted in newspapers all over the world I've been to United States Congress to testify before a subcommittee three separate times uh, I have been in the Japan Times multiple times AFP the French news service has taken my story and put it across the world I've been in the Washington Times been in USA today all of this and this isn't to say rah rah great for me or I wonderful um or oh woe is me this is just to give you background that I have a lot of experience in this and um when my case I won the return of my children to the United States in the Hague courts in Japan twice and was unable to enforce them the return of my children because the Japanese laws are set up such to make sure you can't enforce the return and even if you could enforce them the Japanese law doesn't allow you to actually do enforcement enforce enforcement so as the turn funny turn of phrase is Japan can't enforce its own enforcement laws and it's written it's purposely written that way so they set it up to fail to begin with um and that one microcosm of that agreement is how Japan are sneaky little bastards um they're just evil they're just shitty dealers they're fucking crooks um pardon my language but that was awful 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 deal um and uh so anyhow but in the mechanisms inside japan um one oh i got the trajectory of my case so i won the return did the appeal um during this time, I have, as many parents, if you're in this situation, know it takes a lot of financial resources. There's not no shortage of, of legal people who are, who are willing to take lots of your money. In this case, I, I didn't have those types of people, but I did have other kind of debts. 
I ended up having to, I lost my house. I lost everything in my life in the pursuit of this. Um, I had to have a job that was one I could tim- simply almost a temporary job because I could throw it away because I had to leave to go to Japan at a drop of a hat whenever there's a case and I'd have to be there for a while. So I couldn't have any meaningful, gainful employment while I was going through this process, trying to win the return of my children. And then once I won the return of my children to actually enforce the court orders to bring them back, all of that took time. Eventually, um, during that, my financial situation uh, became apparent to my now ex-wife, her attorney, and they claimed they didn't have any means of supporting my children or for them a place for them to stay which is total bullshit. I always had money. I always had a place for them to stay. It's just, they no longer had the house that they lived in that, you know, our over half a million dollar house that I no longer had that, but I always had a place for them to live and I always had income, uh, but they made that up and they speculated that I didn't have money. I never supplied any financial re- any financial statements in my court, my court documents to state that I didn't did or did not have any money. However, the Japanese, uh, uh, what should I call it? The higher court, which would be the appellate court, and kind of how we look at it here, because it's between the district court and Supreme Courts. Um, looked at it, and they 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 speculated because they didn't supply any financials, and they probably didn't have any money. And based on their speculation, they concluded I didn't have any money, and they used that as a rationale that my kids would be coming back to an untenable or a grave situ- a grave risk, which is language in the Hague, grave risk in the rest of the world, in the rest of the world's court, uh, is, is supposed to be narrowly, very narrowly interpreted as grave risk. There have been children who have been returned to Israel, uh, which is actively being bombed, because the grave risk wasn't specifically to them, but a general society grave risk. Okay, That's how narrowly you interpret grave risk. The fact that the children would no longer be going to private school is not a grave risk to their to their life okay it's a it's a slight different slightly different lifestyle but it's not a risk to themselves but the japanese attorney courts over there said well that's a grave risk and they revoked the return orders of my children and then i took that to the japanese supreme court and it took the supreme court seven you know seven months or more shit let me talk about february uh 10 months to come to a decision and they ultimately decided that yeah the high court in japan the Osaka High Court. Yeah, they were right. Yeah, he probably doesn't have any money and so all that. So I I filed an or I filed uh, an impeachment. I, I put forth an impeachment to the Japanese Diet to impeach all five of the Japanese Supreme members or judges of the Japanese Supreme Court. Okay. So all of that's background on my case. You can understand that. And so I've gone to very very far lengths with this. Um, also, the next bit I bring that up because in my uh, petition for impeachment, I laid out this sort of trifecta uh, laid bare in this document, 50-some page document, with, plus there's, ev- there's evidence and addendums to it and all that, um, about this sort of cabal in how the Japanese court system is uh, corrupt. You have judges who are, some of, some of which have actually never gone to law school. You have something called shelter net. And that shelter net is a network of DV shelters set up around the country that are publicly funded to help women. And those are corrupt as hell. And then you have the uh, Lawyers Association, Family Law in particular, overwhelmingly 
or should say the an overwhelming number of the Japanese family law attorneys all belong to the Japanese Communist Party. In fact, the Japanese Communist Party has on their publications stating that they basically have or they you know all their all the attorneys, family law attorneys in Japan are in their pocket. So you have a political party that is part of the government that is, you know, basically joined at the hip with the family law terms. Okay. Then also you have the shelter net. And so as if anybody is any at all has any familiarity with government funded um, facilities run by a private industry, you can know that they're rife for corruption. So let's say you have, uh, and we'll say, we'll assume this is legitimate. Okay, these are not false claims, but false claims are everywhere. This is a legitimate DV DV situation, domestic violence. Uh, A young, uh, a mom and her kids flee a house of an abuser, and they come to these shelters set up by the government, actually owned by other by corporations that that own these and set these, run these things up. And they let's say they'll they'll come there and they'll get food and clothing, and they get like a monthly stipend of about a thousand dollars a month to live on as they live in that shelter, trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. The government may pay that shelter operator, let's say $2,500 a month to house that person. You see, there's a little bit of a disparity there, right? Well, these are these shelters that are run there are usually at an arm's length transaction or loosely uh, tied to, or some are not so loosely tied to, uh, politicians. That set these up, and so there's massive amount documented kickbacks and conflicts of interest in all of this. You know, so you're warding largesse. It's, you know, it's um, it would it would totally fail the emoluments clause uh, that we have here in the in our constitution, and that's in just you know un, just corruption, right? Then also the um, the politicians are they're also being paid off by this group, as are the judges. And they're all tied in together. And so um, now let's step out of my other, the other narrative of the DV. And there are multiple, multiple false DV claims. If a mom walks into a court and says, my, my husband abused me. I'm a victim of DV. Basically, she has won the case. It's over. It's all done. Because the judiciary in their somewhat in their misogynistic old old traditional way of trying to protect these frail women um, don't see it any other way. Oh, we must protect women. All the while, the ir- irony in a larger sense is Japan victimizes young women and sexualizes them from a very young age. So it's creepy how they do this. Um, but nonetheless, so they, they try to protect the women, or so they say, and that ends up becoming a, um, a problem for, I mean, for for the false claims, but also if we drill down even deeper into the legal aspects of it, coming from the point of view of the United States, um, we have there's only two forms of an attorney that cannot collect a percentage, and that's a patent attorney and a, a divorce attorney. All they can ever do is charge you for your time. Okay, they don't get contingencies, they don't get a percentage of, of whatever. Right? Japanese attorneys are you pay them for their time, they get a percentage of whatever you win, and they'll get a residual percentage of all maintenance payments or alimony or child support you get. So this is just rife with just money flying everywhere 
and it's horribly, horribly corrupt. So divorces don't even have the possibility of cooperation or collaboration because the incentive for the attorney to get rich off of it is so great. And so there is no disincentive to prolonging a divorce. There's only an incentive to prolonging the divorce process and then fighting and fighting and fighting to total destruction, which we might think is bad in the U.S. with just paying by the hour. But eventually one of the parties gets in, right? Over there, they're, not only do they get you during the argument, they're getting you after you get, get your money. Yeah, it's just it's, it's what we call bloodthirsty. So those are, those are some of the larger cultural reasons why we can't, they don't come around. And then the systemic ones of why it just, it's, it's very difficult to break through and to change from the sole custody to joint custody uh, to any sort of major change because the corruption is so deep and the money is so thick um, that we're going to, it's, it's a very difficult uphill battle. Thank you for that awesome answer, James. When you say that you are the person who have been mentioned with the Hague Convention the most, I know that you're not even bragging. It is the truth. I think the Hague Convention was created with the good intentions to help people like you, but with bad enforcement. So do you think we need a reformation when it comes to uh, the Hague? In the larger, I'm not an expert in, in anything in the Hague, okay? I just have experience in it, and I've learned some things along the way. Uh, I can't speak to the Hague in other countries other than what I hear from other left-behind parents who, you know, I, I, I unfortunately know. Because, I mean, I know it's fortunate to know them. It's unfortunate how we know each other uh, because of this. Uh, in the specific case of the Hague with really horrible countries, Brazil, France, and Japan usually top the list of the ones that are the, are the most egregious violators of the Hague. Uh, and France, I can't explain why, because I don't have any firsthand information on that. Brazil, I can understand, because Brazil is rife with corruption. And, and from my our point of view, I guess, in the States, is you would kind of expect Brazil maybe not to cooperate. Um, and just like Middle Eastern countries, when people have their children abducted in the Middle East um, and they can't get their kids back, we kind of collectively, I mean, we're all sad. We empathize, but we're like, yeah, it's the Middle East. You know, they're, you know, they throw rocks at each other, right? So we don't anticipate a sophisticated court system. Um, but when it comes to the specific of Japan, there's, they're our ally. They're supposed to be our friend. They, 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 by all, they present themselves as an advanced country. And so all of our expectations of their behavior indicate to us that they're going to cooperate. The fact of the matter is they do not. And um, so that is shocking, surprising. Our State Department has the powers under the Goldman Act or IPICA, whichever way you want to talk about it, to they have very, very, very strong tools. And the the sad, unfortunate reality is that this international child abduction problem that Japan does, this black hole. The United States State Department or the government of the United States through the State Department could fix this very quickly by basically using the far escalating up the list to the, the stronger tools and tell by and signaling to Japan, cut this shit out, you're done. Return kids. Stop fucking taking kids, right? But they won't. What they keep doing is sending lower level letters like, gosh darn it, you better stop doing this. Boy, we're pretty upset. And, you know, Japan goes, oh, yeah, that's too bad. And they just fucking wipe their ass with that, that last letter, right? They must have rooms 
wallpapered with all these demarches. We could do things like, okay, we're taking this serious. Um, speaking as though I were the State Department, um, we're taking we're taking this serious now. In United States, as the United States saying to Japan, um, until you start returning children and guaranteeing access, we are going to now rescind and no longer issue student visas for Japanese nationals. We are going to severely curtail visitor visas from Japan to the United States. Japanese love the United States. They love to come here. Uh, and I don't say that because just like, oh, wow, America's great. And we are in ways. We've shown that over the years. Uh, but it, they do. It's the fact. They love coming, they love coming to the United States and then leaving. You know, Disneyland, Hawaii, um, all those places. They just love to come and visit. Okay. So this is a significant loss for their country if they were to come here. It's not tourist loss. It's not a big deal for us you know, large scheme of things, right? Um, so we could start rescinding that and curtailing that heavily. That would, have, that would be a fairly, diff, that would be a fairly tough uh, consequence for Japan they'd have to deal with. Another thing that I proposed, which I don't believe is actually legal, but I'll throw it out there as a concept, and I did this in one of my testimonies, is that since Japan has proven themselves to be, well, let me, I got to back up even further in the, in the narrative of how it is. Speaking of Japanese as a monolith, and I know yeah, there's exceptions to these, everything I say is generalizations. There's always exceptions of the inherent part of the generalization. Okay, but the larger part of it holds true. Um, Japanese will not do anything unless they have no choice or they are forced. If you give them, if, if they have an option of inaction and nothing happens to them, they always choose inaction. And the United States has always given them that option of inaction with no consequence. And so, and they work, and J Japanese work really well because from a young age, they're always told what to do and their lives are not their lives, they're lives of what someone else laid out for them. You know, kids growing up, kids grow up to be something not necessarily they want, but what their parents want or society wants them to do, or someone says you should do this. So they do it. Uh, in a larger sense, right? That's why they people refer to this, the populace as a bunch of robots because uh, it's they're not living their lives; they're living they're they're living their lives heavily influenced by the opinions and the thoughts and the goading and the cajoling of others. Um, and so, it's many why that's why many of them like to come to the United States because it's free here. And often they don't even know what to do when they get here with all this freedom. Um, yeah, it's, it's like I said this is borderline illegal. Uh, but what it is, is that it, I had to give that background that they only do the thing forced and they have to be forced and given no other choice, which, which we in the West is an evolved society. You just don't do heavy handed things. We're all about cooperation and you need, you need people to be part of the process. And we have all these nice words, particularly enlightened as we are in the workplace now, you know, bring people along, you know, right? The Japanese don't work that way. They are. They work very well being told what to do. Extrinsically motivated. Carrot and stick. Okay. You do this. You get this. Don't do this. This happens to you. Um, so what I propose from the U.S. government take a position of to Japan saying, okay, when there's a return order for children to be returned to the United States, and there have been return orders. This is not to say that Japan. You know, I don't want anybody to misunderstand that Japan never orders the return of children. Oh, they return. They. They have ordered the return of children. It's just you can't get them back because they've they've so uh, 
wrapped up the enforcement and screwed it up so badly that you can't, even if you follow the process, which is what I did, it does not return result in the return of your children. It's designed to fail. Okay. Um, but if the United States State Department says there's a return order for a children for a child, the parent has 30 days from the from the issue of that order to return the child to the United States, independent of any sort of appeal filed. You have 30 days to return that child back to their parents because they've been away from the parent long enough. 30 days pass, then the United States says after 30 days, if that child's not returned, it now becomes a responsibility of the Japanese government. They have 30 more days to return that child to the parent to the United States. So we have 60 days. In the event, add in the 61st day, the United States reserves the right to use all available forces and law enforcement, i.e. military, in the area to enforce the return, independent and in total disregard for social mores and any local laws. Basically, we're going to go and treat these children like kidnapped U.S. people held hostage. And we're going to extricate them from whoever they are. And we're going to use all available means to hunt down, and I'm mean, using very strong language here, but we're going to, uh, to locate the abductors and to remove the children by any means available to us and return them back to a U.S. citizen, the U.S. parent. I, I still challenge anybody who isn't just like trying to, that isn't in, in it or in the tank for the Japanese or anybody like that, but just anybody explain to me how a U.S. citizen, and these children are U.S. citizens, a U.S. citizens that have been ordered to be returned are still being held in Japan, and by, by definition, they're minors, so they don't have will, so you can't put it against their will. It's just a fact. It's a legal fact that they're being held illegally in a foreign country. Why we don't view that as a hostage or a kidnap? I don't. No one is yet to tell me how that's, in fact, not a kidnapping in all senses of the word and why we don't treat it as such. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a parent. It's still that parent. You know, I, I have sole, I have sole permanent custody of my children. Okay. And they write stories about my, of my case and they say it's a custody battle. Bullshit. It's not. I've even told people who've interviewed me and in the pre and the on background, you know, like, well, okay, we talked about this. And I said, good. You know, do you have anything you would like to, you know, this is the interviewer asking me, is there anything you'd like me to, to be careful about? And I said, yes, do not ever use the word as a custody dispute. This is not a custody dispute. I have custody of my children. I always have. This is a treaty and law enforcement dispute. Don't use word custody dispute. Because when people hear the word custody dispute, they think about, oh, two warring parents that are divorcing. And they're like, well, you know, pox on both houses. No, I've won that the degree that winning means anything in this, okay? I have that legal standing. I have sole permanent custody of my children. It is a law enforcement and a treaty enforcement problem. This belong, this matter isn't between me and my ex-wife anymore. This is between the United States and Japan. And I would really like to see the United States State Department step up and, and take it as such instead of saying, well, this is between two people. No, it isn't. Fuck you guys, all right? This is between the two countries. I didn't sign the goddamn Hague. Personally, my wife didn't sign the Hague. You people did. You two parties did. You take care of it and you get me my kids back. That is your job. That is what you're supposed to do. You know, instead of sending me forms and saying, oh, God, we really feel bad. You know, bullshit, you feel bad. You know, anyways.
little emotional, but it's just, and that's what, and that sentiment is what a lot of parents in my situation feel. They really believe the state department's there to help them. And the state department is only there to send you to honestly, at the end of the day, all they do is give you forms, walk you through the process and keep score if it worked. That's it. They don't do anything else. We had a chance years ago, in the previous, previous, previous in administration, with the previous, 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 I think, Secretary of State, who was very unsuccessful in a much larger attainment. And there are whispers of how that particular individual literally sold our children away. Are being in, with respect to Japan, sold the future prosecution or the pursuit of getting these children back in exchange for things that I don't think we'd all be very happy about if they came public. I totally understand what you're saying, James. Everyone knows that U.S. as the biggest military power, and in many cases, they have been bullying countries to do what they want. However, when it comes to Japan, they have been somewhat laxed about it. Can we conclude that this is because U.S. is more interested in the money that they can make by being buddy-buddy with Japan compared to saving the kids, like U.S. kids from Japan? Uh, I'm not in those rooms. I don't know that, and I don't want to conclude that. I have been told that we, yeah, these are complicated matters. We've got, you know, you know, and other people that think even bigger say, well, we've got, you know, we have those bases over there. We have economic, we have military interests, both of us between each other. And it's like, that's fine. I don't give a shit about that. These are real simple. And at the end of the day, I mean, I'll flip the argument over, okay? Some people will say, like, well, we're only talking about a couple hundred kids. I mean, my point is exactly. There's only a couple hundred kids. What the fuck's the problem? Resolve these couple hundred kid cases. What, why, does, why do we have to raise this to the level of, of being on par and, and jeopardizing, you know, um, you know, tra- or commerce or military bases or things like that? Don't do that. Let's not put it up there. Let's just resolve it as though these are kidnapped children, kidnapped human beings from kidnapped citizens from the United States and prosecute it the same way as this. You know, we had hostages held in Iran when I was a kid. I remember watching it on the nightly news every night, got updates on it. Okay. There's 400 and, or I don't know how many days old. They had, I can't remember how many they were. Okay. And, but there are over 400 children, over 400 U.S. children that have been abducted to Japan that, that parents over here have been trying to get returned that Japan refuses to cooperate with. Meanwhile, the U.S. government is bending over backwards all the time trying to, re- trying to return um, Japanese people that were abducted by North Korea decades ago. And, and the Jap- Japan always comes back, well, if, well, you have to help us with the North Korean problem and get our people back. You know, it's like, bullshit, fuck you guys. Return our kids. You know? Return our kids and show us that you give a shit. And that goes all the way back to that zero-sum game. Japanese don't, co- don't collaborate, don't cooperate. If you want to collaborate, you want this to go better, Japan, how we do it is we give something. Why don't you give us something by returning children, by executing and prosecuting the return of children instead of having this sort of black, this sort of nothingness, the this, that once you get a return order, then here's all these convoluted process. And in fact, I'll tell you how their enforcement rules are, okay? I'll just give you a window into that. So how getting a return order 
from a court, which is not easy, but once you get it is no great is now guarantee of anything. Right. So I won the return of my children. Now here's the enforcement rules of Japan. First, the court, you have, you have to have hearings for every one of these things. Okay. And hearings don't happen immediately. They take four to six weeks to have each hearing and then you have to wait for a decision. Okay. So it tolls, you know, there's, it just takes time. First one is you have a hearing to advise the court of the person that to tell the court to tell the person that just lost, you have to return the children to, and it's just a letter. And then the the court says, Oh gosh, that person didn't reply. It doesn't seem like they're interested. Then you go to something called indirect enforcement and that's the financial penalty. Okay. Then you have a hearing on that and then they lose and then they get to appeal and that takes more time and indirect enforcement is basically money that they're going to, um, uh, assign people. And in my case, my wife doesn't have a job. She's got very wealthy parents and she just gets to live there for free and can get, can always and consistent, consistently plead poverty because she's a kept woman over there. Um, and they remain indefinitely, you know, quote unquote poor, right? Have no assets because her, her assets are her parents' assets, her family's assets. And so she, so she has all those fees going, falling against her. And then, then you get something called direct enforcement. Now, direct enforcement is best in practice is best summarized or conceptualized as ambush. You have to make sure everybody's in the house, the parent, the 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 taking parent and the children. You get to walk up to the door, knock at the door, and get to ask to come in. If they don't invite you in, the law allows them to break down the door if they know the children are on the other side. Well. Okay, so you don't break down that you walk in. And then at that point, then you have to ask the children if they want to come with you. And, and if the children say no, the enforcement's over. You lose. It's all bye. That's, that's the extent of the enforcement. And so how it went down in my case is we got up very early one morning, sat in the Pre, you know, as the sun was coming up, I waited in a van on a rainy day down the block from the house, and they had how many people do we have there? Almost twenty people. It was literally like a SWAT ambush of this house. And as soon as the police went and knocked down the door, all chaos broke loose in the house. Parent and my ex-wife is really good at screaming and being hysterical, but her mom is a, is, a, is fantastic at it. So the whole house is an upheaval. Oh my god, like that stuff. So the kids are freaked out beyond all belief, right? And after all of that, then that's when the opportunity would come for me to go in. I was never allowed in. I sat in a van out in front of the house for three hours in the rain. At the end of the enforcement thing was told, yeah, we don't think they're going to say yes. So we just gave up. So I never even got to see my children after flying to Japan and going through all this shit. I had to sit in the van and wait because the enforcement officers from the court thought it was too crazy. And they wouldn't say yes, and they wouldn't allow me to come in. And, and, and that's how that's how screwed up the enforcement rules are in Japan. So I couldn't even see my kids. And that that's and then they called it failed direct enforcement. So I couldn't get my kids. That's it. You've run you run it all out. You're all done. So I won the order of my return, but their enforcement process is set up to fail. Because I'm honest to God, I mean, I don't know what rational human being hearing this is gonna think that. When you walk up and you ask your kids after all of they've just been through in the early morning, they're still in their jammies, right? Jammies, getting ready for school, and their parents are screaming. Everyone's in the house is screaming. And then suddenly 
the father walks in and says, hey, do you want to come with me? What do you think they're going to say? And that, and in the end of the day, I didn't even get to go in to ask that question. I never even got to see my kids. Yeah, James, I don't think we talked about this, but can you give a little bit more context to the listeners? How old were your children when all this happened? 13-year-old, and uh, I have two sets of twins, so 13-year-old boys, and then a, right? and an 8-year-old boy and girl, somewhere around there. Yeah, so they are relatively young. So if a group of people dressed up as the police come at them, and say that, hey, you want to follow your dad, of course they're going to say no because yeah. you're scared. You think, yeah, I mean, that, that seems intuitively obvious. But see, that was written, that the, the laws or implement, implementation, the rules of implementation or whatever the term is for, were written that way with the mind so that, that they would fail. I have a fairly good, fairly good uh, advice or information that they are written purposely to fail. Because, who, because again, what rational person can look at this and think that that has any shot at success other than these Japanese people who live in fantasy? Like, oh, they, if the kids really want to see the parents, they're going to come with them. If they really miss their parents, they're going to really want to come. No, they're scared to death. And they're also, what they fail to realize is that this taking parent has had this opportunity now has been years to poison the minds of, their, of these children against the other parents. And then at the same time, these children being minors are wholly dependent. All of their trust and their belief is in this parent that took them. And then the and, and the legend of this parent has been built up in their mind, saved them from this awful other parent, right? So even if the kids and kid children fundamentally want both their parents in their lives. Even children have and my kids were not even abused, weren't abused or anything like that. But even children that have been abused still want their other parent. It's weird, as weird as that sounds, they still want to see that other parent. That connection is so strong in their soul, but they but they won't because they're looking at the chaos around them and what all this all this is happening. And children are generally self centered; they just are, and they think the a lot of they they, they have an over they, they have a overextended belief of their influence and effect on the world. You know, a lot of kids think that a lot of things around them that happen are their fault, and it's not. They just happen, right? But they think they had something they did, could have done, or whatever that could have affected the outcome. It's not true. And so they look at all this, the kids are all drill it down. And in this moment, they're like, well, all this is happening because of me. You know, what do they do? They're not going to say yes. They're going to say no, you know, or they're going to run away. So, I mean, this is, this is all calculated to fail from the beginning. And if it wasn't, which is hardly hard to believe, um, it, it's a sign of exactly how backwards and archaic the thought and development of Japan is with respect to human psychology and child psychology, which is non-existent. You know, I mean, I've, and, and, and this is sound egotistical, but I'm pretty damn sure it's factual. I've met with the child psychologists over there that were part of my case. I probably know more about this subject matter than they do just by talking to them and asking them questions. Cause I would, I would say, what about this? And they gave me these, I mean, they were just like, basic fundamental psychological principles of human development, child development. And they looked at me like, what? Huh? I've never heard that before. You know, there are a few people in Japan that are really good. They're on the ball. They know what they're doing. Um, they're both professors up in the Tokyo area. Um, one of them is uh, Odegiri Sensei. She's fantastic. Uh, has, and, her, and she's got a great heart. And she's all about getting children together. She's, I believe she's an advocate of joint custody, or at least 
both parents and the children's lives. And, you know, and that's, you know, so I give props to her. She's been part and full disclosure. She's been someone that's been on my case and has written it on my behalf to the court about my kids. Um, and there's another one um, over there too. I believe his name, last name is, oh shoot, I forgot. Aoki, I think. I think it might be his last name. It might be Aoki. All right. Do you think that the Japanese moms who decide to abduct their kids understand that their own children are going to have a tough time growing up? Nope. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them because many of the many of the children have been have been effectively abandoned by their father or their fathers have been marginalized by society in Japan. And so the present dads aren't necessary in Japan and many 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 mindsets and many 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 households. Dad's just an annoyance. You know, Otosan is just there on the weekends, maybe because he has to be at work five days a week. And then maybe he goes golfing on the weekend and spends time with us. So he's maybe Sunday. Maybe that's the only time they ever really get any time with their fathers on Sunday. Well, so he's been marginalized just by the way society is through the expectation because he's the breadwinner and the mother stays home with the kids. And she has the sole responsibility of the children. And so fathers have been marginalized in the society to begin with. And so the moms seeing that are thinking, well, they're not that important anyways. You know, so what I'm, I'm with the kids six, you know, six of the seven days a week. So I'm picking up one more day. I, that's not a big deal. Right. And so the fathers have been marginalized. They're not seen as of, of having any sort of value in the developmental importance in children's lives in many. So the, the mothers grow up with absent fathers. And um, society sees that too, so I don't think they're. Th- I don't think they think twice. And then also, Japanese women tend to are highly enmeshed with their children. Their meaning, their identities for themselves are not divorced from their children. They're one and the same. If a child succeeds, they feel like they the parent, the mother feels like she succeeded. Okay. If the children fail, the converse is if the children fail, the mother feels a tremendous amount of shame about their uh, child, about their personal failure, that their child had gotten trouble or something. And the children also, it, it, the dynamic also works the other way too. And that is the child has these expectations to never disappoint their parent. And that all works in a very sick, mentally sick stew of, of dysfunction. And that's why you create all these horrible, horrible you know, situations. But no, the short answer is that I don't think they even give a shit. Um, or even think twice about what these children are missing because I don't think they're I don't think they think enough of their of the father or their husband to uh, even think he's worth anything in their lives and they can handle it themselves. Yeah, this brings me to my next question. Have your kids ever tried to reach out to you, especially since you are talking about this everywhere about what happened with you and all that? And at the same time, just googling your name brings all this up. Well, it. In my particular, I have, you know, each case is different. I have specific details in my case that um, don't bode well for me. Um, my kids, one of one of my oldest sons uh, took the role of the other parent because, um, and, a, and, a, and personal personal spokesperson for the group. And so he was the one, and over the time, the little communication I've had with him has been him advocating uh, for his mom in his mom's case. And, and recently, oh gosh, back in October, he finally, finally emailed me for help with financial aid documents. So he and his twin brother could apply to go to college in the United States. That's the only time I'd heard from him for years. Okay. 
and he wanted my help. And so I helped him because I want my, my, my sons have worked very hard. They're brilliant human beings. And I don't want to stand in the way of a personal success. Right. And plus, like, so I want them to give me an opportunity to demonstrate that I, I, I love them and this is what I would do for them. And in, during that process, then he would not communicate with me anything beyond the school. There's no like, hey, how's life going? Chit chat. It was just fill out this for me, send this in by this date. I need it done. Thank you. And um, that was it. And then he communicated to me at, near the end of that. He says, even though you've helped me, I have no interest in talking to you ever. And so I thought, wow. Um, so yes, they've been heavily brainwashed. But another part of my case, and, my, and then he is, he has been the spokesperson, and I'm sure he's been providing enough brainwashing for um, my youngest children who don't know me very well. They left when they were six, and they kind of remember, remember me, and I'm sure anything positive that's ever happened or they, positive memories have been, has been pushed and crushed out of them by everybody around them because they've always lived with my in-laws, my ex-in-laws. So, um, so my ex-wife and my kids all live in my in-laws' house in Japan. Uh, very tight quarters, um, and so they've been they've been bathed in this sort of stuff. But on top of that, my father, my father, biological, my dad, my father, has been paying my ex-wife money to have access to my children. And I would, and knowing him, it's exclusive access, meaning I will pay you this money so I can have access to the children, and that my son cannot. And she, and in our history of our relationship, when we lived here, because we have, we lived, you know, I know her before she left, we'd been together for 24 years and had four children together. Okay. So I, we had this history. He never liked her and she never really liked him. And that was some, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult to be in the middle of that. You know, I'm not saying poor me. I'm just saying it's a fact. It was a difficult situation. And then he and I worked together for about 20 years. And then he decided unilaterally that he suddenly didn't want me in the company and he used he, instead of being a nice dude about it he was a complete asshole and tried to get and created a hostile work environment it's called constructive discharge in legal terms but basically try to create an environment that i would quit from and then he was shocked that when i left that we as a family distanced ourselves and didn't want anything to do with him and that he like his brain couldn't conceptualize that that would happen um and so that the betrayal you know betraying his son and his business partner wouldn't also result in removal from <laughs> our family removal from his life, you know, but apparently it was a uh, lost on him. And, but she over the years would only willingly go to any, any sort of family or any see him and his girlfriend. Cause she's, she's also a uh, complicit in this too. Uh, if, if in some way there was some financial or material gain for her or the kids. And so he has, he, and so he was really, he's got money too. And so he'd buy the boys, uh, a lot of toys and you do a lot of things. Um, and he, and, and so anything, anytime she was willing to go, she ha it had to be communicated to her that there was some sort of gain. Like, yeah, if you want to, you know, we'll, he's going to send it, he's going to bring us to Hawaii. Oh, good. We'll go to Hawaii then. We're going to go to Florida. Oh, okay. We'll go to, Flo we'll, we'll see him. We'll go to Florida. That's how it was. So she was always willing to sell access to her children for money or for gain. So it does not surprise me that this person that she professed to not really like or trust suddenly is someone that she's an ally with because there's money involved. And he has not really developed good personal relationships with anybody because he doesn't trust human, other human beings. Um, but he does trust you. He does trust you if he can pay you. 
And so um, to the degree that he has a financial hook in you, he knows he has. And so they actually have worked out a very nice relationship because it does, they don't have to trust each other. They just, the check just has to clear. And that's what it's been doing. So in my case, my kids, and then um, I was, while I was working with my father, he was getting divorced. He and my mother were getting divorced. And I was subjected to the, the vile crap he would spew about my mother to me at work and what he would say about other members of my family. And so I don't, I, I don't need a great deal of imagination. I just need a good memory to know what was being said about me to my children. So I don't know that they're, I don't know that they would willingly uh, contact me, even though it's all in the media. And, um, and they know my email address, they sent them emails. They just don't reply. And so it's, uh, um, you know, and, and to step away from my specific case, one of the things that many uh, left behind parents hear when, when they're in the, and they tell other people of the situation in their life, my kids have been taking all that stuff. One of the things that many people offer innocently, innocently offer is like, oh, well, one day they're going to try to contact you. They don't. In many cases, they don't. And that's it's really weak, weak advice. And if there are people that are they're, uh, friends of this or interested in this topic that aren't in it themselves, I want you to stop telling people that. Please, please stop doing that. Because very, very few kids actually reach out, abduct, particularly kids in, from Japan, reach out and try to find their lost parent. They've often been told their parent is dead. Almost all of them have been told their parent doesn't care about them, doesn't even think about them, probably is remarried, has other kids, and are forgotten, which are all lies. All lies. Okay? But that is, that's often what they're told, being brainwashed. And... um so, and I, and I can understand the people that say these words, what's coming from, because what they, when they hear that, if, particularly if they're a parent, they have children of their own. And when they hear the information that you've had your children stolen from you and you have no contact from them, that flash in their brain and what they feel in their gut where they want to throw up, they need quickly, the mind wants to heal that. And so the mind says, okay, well, what can I, what can I do to to mitigate this pain or dismiss it. What's a thought? Um, um, yeah, one day they're going to come in contact. Okay, I feel better thinking about that. That's what I'll tell them. And so, but what they fail to understand, if you are somebody listening to this who has someone in their life who is going through this horror, okay, do not tell them, uh, oh, one day they'll come and find you and think that that's going to help because, in fact, in actuality, that is a very small likelihood. Sit with them and sit in their pain because what you've experienced for just the few moments it took you to come up with the, oh, they'll contact you, is what we live in 24-7 and what we breathe with every breath of our life. Find something else. Find something else. And if you can't find something that calms you, dig deeper and figure out how you can help them hold it together and stay calm. James, from your own opinion, based on everything that we spoke about today, what can the listeners do to help the situation in Japan? Uh, parents, yeah. If they're U.S. citizens, if they're part of the U.S., um, just raise this issue, which sounds really, it's kind of weak sauce what I can say here, but I'll say it. Raise this issue, talk to your congressman, your congress, your representatives, get this to the State Department. I 
absolute fact, the State Department has the tools and the powers to end or significantly curtail these abductions. They really do. And they will say that they don't. They're full of shit. That's bullshit. They do. They have very, very strong tools. And in the concrete case of Japan, they can end this like today, stop this today, and they won't. And they have the tools to do it. And, and, and they have far more grave, far more awful, pernicious consequences than simply just shutting off visas. They've got, they, they can shut down offices, embassies, close consulates, you know, all of that. They can do that. They can pull back diplomats. I mean, what if, what if the United States State Department decided to get real about this and either not just threaten, but actually just said, you know something, we're closing the Tokyo embassy. You know, until you can until you can respect the human beings, our children, our U.S. children, your country, we are publicly, like in international stage, we're closing our embassy and calling our people back until you can agree to abide by the treaties that you've signed. And the concrete example of child re- child returns. That is one of the higher level consequences. But if they did that, that would be such a massive international point of shame. And calling Japan on the carpet, it would have to precipitate some kind of change. But because we, as, a, as the State Department or as a country, are unwilling to even throw that out there or even do it, Japan's like, yeah, you know, they threaten us all the time, but it's like a barking dog. We'll just close the door, close the window, and then we don't hear it as bad, right? No, you gotta let the dog off the leash and go do it. And I had really, honestly, it held out a lot of hope. And I'm going to get political here. I'd held out a lot of hope under the uh, Trump administration that this would happen. This would change. I have, uh, and also another political too. If you are someone that cares about this and you step in the voting booth and you are indifferent about who you're going to vote for, for your congressman, vote Republican. And I say that because I was invited to testify and all my similar left behind parents were invited to testify every year. When the Republicans control the House, because there's, there is Chairman Chris Smith from New Jersey who's taken this issue on as a personal issue, and he holds hearings. And every year we talk about, every year there's hearings about this, sometimes a couple times a year, and he pushes us. He's a champion. He's a saint. He's a great human being for doing this. But when the Democrats control the House, they want to do investigations, and they shut this down and never talk about this issue. Like, our kids don't matter. Okay. So if you're indifferent who you're voting for and you're like, I just need a reason, vote for Republican congressmen so that we can get back to control the House, so you can put Chairman Smith ahead of the committee, so we can have hearings about this and bring this thing to light. Because under the Democrats, this thing is swept under the rug. Um, And also, generally, I don't know of any Democrat senator who's ever sponsored or brought a child back. I know that Mitch McConnell has been involved probably in more returns of children from foreign countries than any other senator. And I'm open to anybody correcting me on this fact and sending me information because I'd love to be wrong on it. But everything I've ever read and I know about Mitch McConnell and a few other Republican senators are the ones that bring kids back. Uh, Rubio is one. Um, others have brought kids back, have been, have been instrumental in being part of rallying the forces or the powers in our U.S. government to bring children back. Okay. That's what you can do as a voter and if you're in those constituencies. But the other thing, too, is just to put pressure on um, the State Department. 
in your government in our government to bring the kids back and to bring this issue to light whenever you can. If you really care or you even know if you if if you're not a parent but you're <clears throat> a friend of a parent, a relative of a parent that's in this situation, be relentless on this and keep pushing because I will tell you there there are US laws or you, we under the Goldman Act, the US State Department, I keep coming back to this, has the power to affect change on this and they can do it very quickly. They just don't. And our current State Department were really, really struggling because they're appeasers. They just like under Obama and now they're going to go around and apologize for the strength that the United States has and the power we, we have and the regard that we have and make us seem like we're bad. This is the wrong kind of message. We need to go with strength. We need to say, yes, we are America. We earned our, we earned our standing in the world. And we're going to use some of it. And we're going to use it in this case to bring back children because we are in the large part, champions and forces for good. And this is good. This protects human rights. This respects human rights. If we don't fight for our children, our children's inalienable sovereign right to exist beyond those of the rights of the parents, okay? If we don't fight for that, we're not, we're not respecting human rights, basic human rights. If we look the other way, if we say to Japan, you know, yeah, you just run your government however you want. Oh, those are your laws. Yeah, if you want to crap upon our citizens' rights, if you want to crap upon our children, we're going to turn the other cheek. We're just going to look the other way because, well, that no, these are our citizens. This is how we show that we care about our citizens and our children and how we universally respect human rights. Not just when you're in the United States, anywhere in the world, our citizens are, we have to stand up for them. And these kids, these are some of our most vulnerable, impressionable citizens. By no, literally, by no, not of their own will or choice, they're there and they're held captive and they're under the power and they're wholly dependent on someone that took them. That does not, in many, many cases, legally, if not ethically and morally, has no standing to hold them. That was uh, powerful, James. Now, what advice that you have for people who are going through a similar situation as yours? As somebody who have done everything, what advice that uh, you have for them? You know, it's difficult for me to give good advice, ones that be effective, particularly in the case of Japan, because I've tried virtually everything. I haven't gotten a hunger strike, so, you know, and Vincent did that one. Um, other people have done other things. The, the things that I, and, and I hate to say this, but I'll say it, I'm trying to help people, and it doesn't help the cause, but it'll help individuals. I've heard many cases, many situations of parents, almost exclusively, in fact, actually exclusively fathers, who have been able to buy their way back into their children's lives and literally pay off the abductors and pay them, pay them large sums of money just to have them be open to the possibility of seeing their kids and then paying monthly support money, like large sums of money on an ongoing basis. To, make, to stay in the children's lives. So basically, you're paying ransom. At the end of the day, parent, parents of means and parents that have the financial wherewithal can pay ransom, in many cases, to have access in their, to be in their children's lives. As soon as the money goes, so does the access. That's my advice. Other than that, you're, you're, it, it, at this point in this stage, point in time, the State Department's not doing anything. I think the State Department is going to need a um, 
uh, some outside action to occur that might bring them to the table or bring them bring up bring to light their inaction and the tools that they have that they've been failing to use and they become may need to be called uh, and held accountable for. That may help the State Department if, and we can do that through citizens and through other actions. Uh, but in a personal sense, uh, I, hate, I hate using some of these cliched statements everybody uses, but don't give up hope. Use tools like the Find My Parent uh, tool. Connect with other left behind parents for support. Um, there are a lot, we've lost a lot of people to suicide, a lot of men um, to suicide. Cause again, predominantly in the case of abduction, uh, with children, like to Japan, it's almost overwhelmingly women that take them. So it's fathers that are left behind. Some have lost their life, taken their own lives because they can't handle the pain. It's hard to get out of bed. I can tell you that, um, there are days that it's, uh, um, opening my eyes and seeing them still alive have been, I've been greeted with, Oh my God, still. Um, and so I have good days. I've had good days and bad days for the last seven years. Um, but there isn't a day that goes by. I don't think about my kids and I don't think I'm unusual on that. And there isn't a day that goes by that, that's just some point in my thought process. It's like, well, what if I tried this, you know? Um, and maybe, maybe if others have the same thought process, they're like, well, I'm going to try that. You know, I'll try that. But we do run out of energy after a while. This, this process in the, in the specific case of Japan is designed to wear us out and give up, have us give up. That's how they set it up. It's, just, it's a war of attrition. They just want you to eventually lose your energy or ultimately lose your life. Because that's easy for them then. Particularly the Japanese. Oh, someone killed themselves. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, this is a terrible case. Well, anyways, well, it looks like it's resolved now. I mean, that's literally how it goes down over there. Um, and they're lazy. And they just want, they don't want conflict. They want people to work it out. And the ones that are willing to work it out are the ones that um, ultimately prevail. Uh, so that's, in the case of Japan, that's some advice. Uh, abducted parents of other children to other countries. Just get in a network. I stand as another organization. They're really good. They're, they're focused. And they have connections to the, to the government. They do marches. They're in Washington a lot. Um, they're good people. They have support calls, um, you know, contribute, contribute to that either in person or in cash also or money. Um, they're good, they're good folks. Uh, there are other ones that have other NGOs. Um, but yeah, just, just get involved. You're not alone. And I want people to know that you're not alone. And it, and it, sometimes it's not a, it's not going to solve your problems like reaching out to everybody, but it's going to make, seem less and maybe just enough less that you're like yeah i can do this for another day a week a month you know and um but yeah that's in terms of on a very personal emotional level connect with other people don't be alone in this um because it's gut-wrenching pain it, it's like i said it's hard it's hard to breathe sometimes and um i, I understand that i empathize i don't sympathize with people i empathize i'm in the hole with you i've been there and so I, yeah, I get it. And my last question to you, James, is that say that somehow this podcast episode reaches to your kids and they're listening to it. What will your message be to them? Oh, wow. So much that I always, I've always practiced this conversation face to face. 
or as though it were a curve face to face. But if they hear this, I do. Well, first of all, there's much you've been told that's a lie. And the only way you're ever going to learn that it was a lie is by actually talking to me. And I can tell you what's a lie and what's not a lie. And I can also tell you what's truth, you know, because, and I also know that I, I know very, very, very well the people who have been telling you information. And I, in one particular individual, I know how he lies. I know how he takes kernels of truth and expounds on them. And there are stories that are actually, that he's written in affidavits. The actual opposite was the reality. 180 degrees from what was written was the reality of it. Uh, but it was only rewritten to make me is the villain, not the hero. Um, also, this I am very, very sorry to my children. I'm very, very sorry what happened in our life, in our family, between mom and I. That is unfortunate. In my part, I'm very, very, very sorry for my part of it. Um, and I will take that regret and that upset with me for the rest of my life. And I would love an opportunity to apologize to you in person for it and talk to you about it. And I don't need to convince you I was right in any way at all. I just want to share with you where I was at. And so, so you can at least have some understanding and have you process that to the, to the level that you're able to. But ultimately, I miss you much. There's not a day I don't think about you. I love you to my core. Um, although I've, if you can reflect on it, I, I don't ever use the words I'm proud of you. Your life is your life to live as you see fit and how to your standards and what you want to achieve. And my assessment of being you're, you're good and I'm proud of you is not how I want you to think about it all or orientate your life. I am proud of you. Um, in terms of my older boys, I'm proud of what you've become and the environment you've been in. And, um, and I really am happy for where you're going in life. And I wish you the best. Um, my youngest kids, I miss you. We never had a lot of time together in the years that you were here. And it was some of the worst years that if you can even remember back that far, it was some of the worst years of my life were that time. And it wasn't because of you guys. It was because of the things grandpa did to me and did to our family. And it was, and he indeed, and he indeed did a large amount of the damage that contributed to the destruction of our family. And that's a fact. And we can sit down, I can talk to you and explain to you all the background, which I'm sure he's never told you what went into that. And so, but again, I miss you tremendously and I'm here for you whenever you want to come, you want to contact me. I'm only here to love you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm not here to tell you your mother's awful. I'm not here to tell you anybody's awful. I just miss you. And I want to be back in your life again. And part of your gentleness uh, that you have, my older boys, to the degree, one in particular. Part of the gentleness that you have is from my spirit. I know that. I recognize that. I saw that. And as I said in my testimony, I ache in my soul for your absence. And I want that to heal. And I want to the degree that I need it or the degree as possible, I want your forgiveness. And so we can build a relationship because I was a very good dad to you guys. 
I mean, I had a good husband to mom at times, but I was a very good dad to you. And I, you've missed a lot. We've missed a lot. And I'm someone that can be there for you for the remainder of your life for however long you do you want to be in contact with me. I can add to it. That's my statement. Thank you, James, for that passionate episode with us. And I'm sure our listeners enjoyed and got inspired by the things that we spoke about. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor, or if you happen to have a difficulty in understanding certain parts of this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or this interview or this podcast, you can email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to www.findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO, or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Till then. Double.